but I've decided to come to the 21st century. Yeah, we're going to see how this works. After Sean threw down the challenge, so you know he does his notes on, on a tablet and things. For 25 years I've always used paper. Rich can appreciate this. Always just used paper. It doesn't fail, right? And so, uh, yeah, I, I'm a sucker when it comes to the challenge. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll take this up. I do have it printed out on paper, so you're not going to dump that easy. Okay? If this fails, I will get the paper. We'll see, we'll see how this works. But if you have your Bibles, you get them open to Acts chapter 17. That's where we're going to be uh, spending it this morning. And uh, we're going to be looking at the last part of the chapter there. In this. And, and I titled the, this sermon, also you have notes in your, in your bulletin there, it's on the inside and on the back of your notes that are in that form this morning. But titled this sermon, Say What? Helping Others Recognize Three Truths About God. And, and I, I want to introduce this by telling you a little story about how I introduced somebody to, to God and Jesus. Uh, it, was, it was my freshman year in college, and I was having dinner uh, at a pizza parlor with a friend of mine named Tom. And Tom had been a Christian for several years. Me, I had been a Christian for maybe a year and a half or two years, something like that. And so I was still learning a lot about uh, what the Bible was saying, what, who Jesus was, and, and the Trinity, and all of those things. And as we were talking, this young man named John comes in. And I knew John from high school. John and I played a lot of baseball together. We played on some championship teams and all-star team together. And we got to know each other pretty well. But then we lost track of each other after high school. And so about a year later, John comes walking into the pizza park. And he recognizes me and recognizes Tom. And he sits down and joins us. And John was feeling overwhelmed with the spirit. The spirit of alcohol. He had had a little too much drink. I'm not sure how he drove to the pizza parlor. Not sure how he made it, but he was feeling real good. And we're talking, and I'm kind of half paying attention to the conversation that Tom and John are having. And then I catch this phrase from Tom as he's talking to John. He says, John, there is something special that Bob and I have. And Bob's going to tell you about it. <laughs> you know that deer in the headlight look? I had that. And I'm like, how in the world? What, what are you talking about, dude? You're putting me under the bus here with this thing. I mean, I had not gone to Bible college. I hadn't taken a Billy Graham School evangelism course or anything. I mean, who am I to be sharing about this, right? Scared to death. But the opportunity was open. Again, I can't not accept the challenge. I'm just that way. And so, all right, I'm going to do the only thing I know to do. I'm just going to share what the Bible has to say about God and about Jesus. Not a bad plan, right? That's a good thing. But I started in Genesis 1. <laughs> <laughs> in the beginning, God. Well, that's not so bad. That's a good place to start. But I continued on through everything about Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and then into the Exodus and the wanderings around the wilderness there for 40 years and all of that. I kind of hit and missed the minor prophets in there a little bit and uh, even just 
kind of finally got to the birth of Jesus and then Jesus' ministry for three and a half years among us and that he lived and taught and then he was crucified on a cross and then he rose again from the dead. Now I just told you all that in about, what, two minutes? Yeah, he endured 30 minutes of this. 30 minutes, and the whole time he's just going, just smiling, nodding. And John, he, he left after I was done, and I'm just, like, I'm scared to death. And Tom goes, you know, Bob, next time you should, you might not want to share the entire Bible with somebody. You might want to condense this down. And, and as time went on, through it was about seven or eight years, I learned how to share my faith more with people and make it more concise and kind of learning where they were at and kind of getting on their level and talking to them about this. <clears throat> Well, about eight years later, I run into John. And John's five, I'm trying to hide from him, because I'm remembering this incident in the pizza parlor. And he sees me. And he comes up to me and says, hey, you remember that night in the pizza parlor? Oh, yeah. I remember that night. He says, well, you know what? I left you guys at night, and, and a couple days later, I was in trouble. I was in jail. And I ended up spending um, a stint in the county jail for about a year. And God met me through those events and things. And finally, somebody shared with my, uh, about my need for Jesus in my life. And I remembered that conversation, one-sided, that you and I had about Jesus and everything that you shared. And I gave my life to him. Amen. Now, if God can do that with a 20-year-old kid, he can do that with any of us, right? He can use any of us. Maybe my method wasn't necessarily the best. It wasn't wrong. It was kind of wrong. But God used it. And I, I, the only thing that I, as I look over that event, as I, I think back to, you know what, if I had taken the time to learn a little bit about where John was at in his life at that point. See, at, at 20 years old, my one goal was, i got to get this out, shotgun stuff. I'm just going to blast him with the gospel. Right? Sometimes that's okay. But sometimes we need to take a moment to find out where people are at and meet them at that level. Because, especially today, people don't have a very extensive background about the Bible, about who Jesus is, about creation, about God. They, they are not biblically literate today. Matter of fact, many people 25 and under have never been in a church. I don't know the percentages. I've heard various percentages. Let's just say it's 30%, between 30 and 50%, have never been in a church. We live in a post-Christian culture, I can say, that we are tending to move away from God being the center of life and where man is the center of life. One of the stats I came across was kind of interesting is this one. Now, this is among church adults. This is not just Americans. This is church adults. People who have been in church for that. Take a look at this. This is interesting to me. Christians have a responsibility to evangelize others. You see the red and the orange here, which is these two categories. And it is 54% strongly disagree with that. 54% of Church going and we call them Christians do not believe that we have a responsibility to evangelize others. Over here, 
55%, however, strongly agree or somewhat agree with the statement, good works result in going to heaven. 55% of the people in our church today apparently believe that a relationship with Jesus is not what's important, it's about what you do. That's what earns you the points of getting into heaven. That's not a new idea. That idea has been around since the days of Jesus, the days of Paul. The Pharisees had that kind of scheme. They, they said that if you did all of these good things and you did all these bad things, you put them on the scale and you hoped at the end of the day that the good outweighed the bad. And for that day, you would make it into heaven because the good outweighed the bad. If you got behind on a day, you needed to make up some ground the next day. <coughs> Mind how we come around full circle. And so the point of that is, is that we need to not assume that people that we are going to share with, like I shared with John, necessarily understand what we're talking about. This is what Paul found himself in a situation in Athens. He's sharing with a group of people there who don't have the same background and history and idea that others have that he shared with. They did not have a clear understanding of who God is. And, and so we will see that Paul needed to start where they were. He needed to first of all discover where that was. And through this passage, I want to show you three truths about how we can help people discover and recognize who God is and about. Paul at this point, before we get into verse 16, Paul has been to Thessalonica, and he'd been to Berea sharing the gospel. And those places had a background about the Old Testament. They knew something about the works that Jesus had done. They knew about the crucifixion and the stories of the resurrection. So it wasn't very strange to them. But the Judaizers, the people in those towns that did not like what Paul was sharing, stirred up the crowds and drove Paul out. Drove him out of Thessalonica, and he went to Berea. He was sharing in Berea. The Bereans were eating us up. This was good stuff. They stirred up the crowds and they drove him out of Berea. And he ends up here in Athens. And this is where we pick up our story here in Acts chapter 17. I think that's here. There it is. Follow along as I read this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And by the way, the word here, greatly distressed, just pause for a minute. A better word is provoked. Greatly distressed kind of gives this idea of, um, well, he was just kind of upset, which he was. But he was also, the idea was he was moved in his spirit. He's seeing all these idols, and, and he felt compelled to do something about this. That what he was seeing was stirring him up in his spirit. Maybe it helps to understand what Paul was seeing. It is said that in Athens at this time, there was about 30,000 idols in Athens. Now, that's a lot. The population of Athens was 10,000 people. That's three idols for every person. It was said that it was easier to find an idol in Athens than it was a person. And so this is the, this is the city that Paul is walking into, and he's greatly distressed by this. So, verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day, and with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this battler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating for gods. 
They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So here Paul, he enters into Athens, and, and he's trying to share about Jesus in the marketplace. And he's starting where he always started, like he did in Lystra and the city of Antioch, and like he did in Thessalonica and Berea. He tries to start with the fact that you already know something about God and you know something about Jesus. But these words were falling on his audience as battle. They didn't understand it. it, it was, they had different definitions for terms. For example, when Paul uses the word for resurrection, it was confusing to his audience here, to the Athenians, because they had one of their Greek goddesses named with the same word that means resurrection. And so they were confused. Maybe he's talking about the Greek goddess. And Paul's kind of wondering, what, what is happening here? He realizes there's a problem. He realizes there's a communication problem. There is an understanding problem. Those of you married know that communication can be a problem. <laughs> you know that when you say something to your wife and you think it's very innocent, she looks at you with that look of, how did you live so long and know so little? <laughs> <laughs> and you're wondering, what did I do? Right? Because we take words and we assign definitions to them and, and we don't take the time to kind of understand each other. Well, wait, what do you mean by that? Oh, okay, I didn't understand that. Now I did. A lot of problems in marriage can be solved just by getting communication right, amen? Right? Amen. So Paul has a problem here. His audience does not understand what he's saying. And he realizes and so then Paul then goes to the first step. This is not going to work. Michelle, you're just going to have to advance it for me. Thank you. First step in helping them to recognize the truth about God is that we need to help people recognize that God is. The Athenians didn't realize that there was a God. Look at this. Paul then stood in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people in Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So what you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you. Look at where Paul started here. First of all, he acknowledges, I see you're very religious. I see that you have some Understanding there's something bigger than yourself. You don't know what it is. Because you have an altar to an unknown God. And I'm going to show you who it is that you've been worshiping. Or who you would want it to worship. Or who that inside of you is stirring up. I'm going to show you who it is that you should be connecting with. I'm saying it, it, it's God. And you're on the right track. And let me tell you about it. There is a God. Now, this is a little bit strange for his hearers, too, because you need to understand something about the Epicureans and the Stoics. Who were these people? The Epicureans were 
what we would call existentialists. They were people who lived for the experience, and their primary chief end in life was to live for pleasure. They were very hedonistic in their approach to life. To whatever felt good, they would do. And pain and suffering was to be avoided at all costs. And, and so, it, it didn't, the morality wasn't the issue. It was what, if it was good and it felt good, do it. If it brings you pleasure, do it. They did not believe that the world was created by God. They, they believed that matter just kind of came together. Does that sound familiar? Our evolutionary theory that supposedly everybody says Darwin kind of supported actually was part of this back at the time of Paul. It's not something new. For years people have been saying that, that the earth just somehow happened. It just somehow came together. That matter just somehow arranged itself and, and, and this world that we live in and its complexity just happened. Have you ever stopped to think about just how complex our world is, our bodies are? You realize that when you walk on this earth, that you are walking with 14.7 pounds per square inch of air pressure pressing outside and all around you? There's a thought, there's a statement. <laughs> but if that thing varies one little bit, one way or the other, it would have bad outcomes for us. Our earth spins on its axis at a certain speed. If it went a little slower or a little faster, there would be dramatic climate change and probably we'd not even have life as we Our bodies, the way that they're constructed, the way the heart works, the way all the vessels and, and the brain and everything's all connected and all the organs function and all the things, it's complex. It, it just can't happen just out of nothingness. I mean, it, to me, it, it's like if I went to, to Home Depot and I bought a bunch of lumber and nails and screws and everything, whatever, and I knew a hurricane was coming through Reddit. And I threw all that out in front of the hurricane and put it down and said, okay, the hurricane now is going to stir all this lumber up. It's going to build me a house. First of all, That'd be the last thing you all listen to me about, right? <laughs> and yet that's what the world thinks happened in our, in our existence came about. That somehow all of this was just kind of floating around, it was all sitting there, and this, this big windstorm comes together, and it somehow all came into order. The plants, the trees, the world, the air, our bodies, everything, somehow this all just came together. And Paul says, look, there is a God, and the creation speaks about him. When you look at the complexity of our bodies, look at the complexity of the earth, there has to be a designer. There has to be one who put these things into order. There has to be one who created this existence that we have. Romans 1, 19 tells us that the creation speaks of God's existence. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, is what verse 19 says. And Paul here is talking about in this whole chapter in Romans 1 about the creation speaking to those in, in the world. That the creation is saying that God is and, and, and it's, it's hollering out that he, that he is real. And so that men are going to be without excuse. That's what Romans 1, 18 23 talk about. And it goes on to say in that passage that although they knew God, they did not acknowledge him as God and they, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for things in the form of a 
In Psalm 19, verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hands. And so Paul is telling his audience, look, God is. This world living, proclaim Him. You say He's unknown. I'm telling you, hear you. This is God. And so the first work we have is to help people perhaps when we understand what they are is to help them understand that God is. They may not know that. Do they know that God is? The second step is this. People need to recognize who God is. People need to recognize who God is. Chapter 17, verses 24 through 29 say this. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and their boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not far from any of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine beings like gold or silver or stone and image made by human design and skill. Paul is saying, now I'm going to show you who God is as he goes through this. And there are five traits of God. There are more, but there are five here that I want to point out to you that perhaps we can help people understand about not only God is, but who God is. And the first one is this, that he is the creator. That he is the one who is behind this design. That he is the one who, who has brought it all into existence. First, first half of verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven. It is God who is made Genesis 1 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 146, verses 5 and 6. Blessed are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea. And everything in them. He remains faithful forever. Ephesians 3.9 says this. And God makes plain in everyone the administration of this mystery. For which the ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. And then finally Colossians 1.16. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. First of all, we, we need to help people understand that God is, is he is the creator of all things. He is the creator of life. He is the creator of the earth. He is the creator of everything. Nothing has come into being apart from him. The second thing Paul wants to understand is that, that he is ruler. You know a creator, but he is ruler. That the creation is not that he is not subjected to the creation, but the creation is subjected to him. That he was over the creation. 
And he is not bound to live in certain idols and things. For it says in the second half of verse 24, and God does not live in temples built by human hands. Again, Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Ephesians 4, 6 tells us that there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And again, Colossians 1, 16 telling us that by him all things were created. Again, he is the ruler over all creation. Creation doesn't rule him. He is not subjected to our whims and wishes. We are to be we need to understand and help people understand that he is not only creator and ruler, but he is also giver. He is also giver. Verse 25. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. In Deuteronomy 8, verses 17 and 18, the author writes that you may say to yourself, my hands have produced this wealth for me. But you forget it is the Lord your God who has given you the ability to produce wealth. What did Jesus say in John 15 Apart from me, you can do nothing. But in Philippians 4.13, Paul says, I can do all things through who gives me strength. Apart from him, there is nothing we can do because he gives it all. He gives us our breath. He gives us our life. He gives us everything we need for life and godliness. And that's what Peter says in 1 Peter. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And we need to help people understand that he is the giver of all these things. It's not because of our own intellect, because of our own hard work and smarts. It's because of God's blessing on us. It's because of God's empowering us. It's because of God's grace that we have. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15 says, it's he who makes the grasses grow and then he takes care of all of that. Provides for us. Romans 11, 36, for in him are all things and from him all things. James 1.17 tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of us. And then Matthew 6.33 tells us, Seek first the kingdom of God and, all, and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What things was he talking about in the verses prior to that? Most of us know Matthew 6.33. We've had that memorized probably since we were the higher how we were walking the Lord. But the verses before that talk about what we're going to eat, what we're going to wear, what we're going to be sheltered with. And Jesus says, if God takes care of all those things for the sparrows, aren't you more important than them? And that's a rhetorical question. Yes, you are. And so just as he took care of them, he's going to take care of you. He is the giver of all of that. So seek first. We need to help people understand that he is the giver of all that to seek him. Not only is, is he creator, ruler, and giver, but he's also controller. Verse 26. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, 
and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. There's nothing that happens in this earth that is apart from God's hand. He knows it all is happening. Psalm 24, 1 and 2 again. The earth is the Lord's and everything in. John 1, 3. Through him all things were made. And nothing has been made that's come into being apart from him. Colossians 1.17 tells us that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There is nothing out of his control. He's holding it all together. Look at this. Back in the Old Testament, look what happens to Job. Job goes through all these things, but it's not that Satan has unbridled license. God gives, him, gives permission to Satan to do certain things to Job, but only to a certain point. He's not absent when Joseph is going through all his trials. When his brothers sell him into slavery. When he's, when he's accused by Potiphar's wife and he's thrown in prison. Ultimately, God spares a whole nation through Joseph because of all of those things that happened. God's hand is at work there. Moses, being raised up and put into Pharaoh's court, and only then to come back and lead the people out and, and take them through the wilderness for 40 years. And on, there's several stories that give you to this. The point is that God is not absent from the happenings and things of our day. I'm not suggesting that God delights in tragedy. I'm not suggesting that God inflicts pain and tragedy on us and, and that and he's happy about that. I'm not saying that, that God was happy that the car fire or the campfire happened. What I'm saying is was not out of his control. He was not surprised by it. In other words, God didn't go, oh, the campfire happened. I didn't see that coming. He knew. I don't have the answer you want. If he knew, why didn't he prevent all this from happening? I don't have that answer other than God's sovereignty. And one day, maybe we'll know the answer to that. But the point that I want us to get here is that it's not out of his control. He is not absent. He is not far from us. He is still here. And we can cry out to him for guidance and for understanding and for peace and for comfort in the midst of this. Not only is he creator, ruler, giver, controller, but he's also creator. Verses 27 to 29. Say this. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold, silver, or stone, an image made by human design and skill. He's telling us here that God is revealing himself. We've already looked at how the creation is speaking about God. And now God is wanting to reveal what he has. And leading up to the third step here in a minute. That, that he has something more than just what this world has to offer. And he promises that if we seek him with all of our hearts, he will reveal himself. Jeremiah 29, 13. If you seek me and find me with all your heart, then you will find. 
you seek me and search for me with all your heart, then you will find me. Romans 2, 14 to 15, talk about the Gentiles. That is, they, they know the law instinctively, even though they've never heard of it. They do the things of the law because there's just this, this instinct in them. It's what some people refer to, a God-shaped void that is in us. That we were created by God to have a relationship with Him. Remember Adam and the fall? Why did God create Adam? Part of it was to have a relationship with Him. Part of it was to have, to, to tend to the garden. To rule over the earth. Just to do it. But it was to have a relationship with God. When that relationship was broken, then there was this, this void that occurred. See, prior to the fall, Adam had harmony in four areas of his life. He had harmony with God. He had harmony with the creation. He had harmony with himself. And he had harmony with his wife. When sin entered, and they said, yes, the forbidden fruit. That fourfold harmony turned into a fourfold disharmony. Now Adam had disharmony with God, disharmony with the creation, disharmony with himself, and disharmony with his wife. But Jesus came to restore all that. He came to bring back a way that we could experience harmony with God in relationship with Him. That we could experience harmony with the creation and live in it and still subdue it. That we could experience harmony with ourselves and accept who God has made us to be. And accept and, and, and restore harmony with each other with our spouses, with our friends, with our neighbors. Because that is what God intended for us, not only to have a relationship with Him, but a relationship with each other. And Jesus has come to give us that way back so that we could have that harmony once again. We need to help people. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that those who believe He exists, He rewards those. He rewards those by redeeming himself. Yes, here I am. That leads us to the third step. Not only do we need to help people see that God is and who God is, but we need to help people see what God has said. Verses 17, chapter 17, verses 30 through 31 say this. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. We are given assurance of the fact that God is who he said he is, but the fact that he has risen Jesus from the dead. God has said, I am, I am here. And I have given you my son, and I have raised him from the dead, and now he is sitting at the right hand of me. He has said in his word that there is no other name under heaven which men must be saved, meaning the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter preaches that. Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes into a relationship with God except through me. He goes on to say that anybody who comes in by any other way is a thief and robber. There is no other way. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 34, is the resurrection passage. Paul explaining about the fact how important resurrection is, and in fact, if Christ be not risen from the dead, our faith is in vain, and we are being pitied. Above all men. But he says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. 
and there's a new day coming. And God has also said that there's going to be a judgment. That Jesus is coming back and that judgment has been given to the Son. John 5, 22, 27. And the Son is going to judge in the last days those who are in relationship with Him versus those who are not. To those who have a living and abiding relationship with the Father, eternal life. Those who don't, eternal separation and damnation. The parable of the sheep goes in Matthew 25, verse 31 and following, illustrated. It tells us that, that he is, there is going to be a judgment, and he's going to separate the nations based on where they're at. Are we with him? Or are we not? Or Those are some of the things that God has said that we can help people recognize. That yes, he has come to give us life and, and, and give it to the full. We need to have that good news in there as well. And the fact that yes, there is a judgment. But you don't have to succumb to the judgment. You can come out on the good side. It ends up with Paul here and some responses that he gets after he shares all of this with the Athenians. Verses 32-34. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear from you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. He goes on to name them. And, and the phrase followers of Paul is actually that they, they were followers of Paul's message. Paul uh, telling them they needed to, to repent and turn and, and give their lives over to Christ. And, and apparently some of them did that. Repent means change of mind, a, a, a turning around from a way of life into a, a different direction. To put off the old and embrace the new. As we help, as we, if we help people try to recognize God is and who God is and what God has said, we may get a variety of response. We may get people to laugh at us. Nobody's ever risen from the dead. What kind of foolishness is that? That's some of the answers Paul got. Might be people who are, well, you know what, I'd like to talk more about that. Let's talk again later about it. They're not ready to really surrender right then, but they want to maybe hear more. Maybe they're just being nice or polite. Maybe they're really interested. It's not for us to determine. It's for us to be open and, and, and share. The, the people who laugh and sneer, it's not for us to write them off. We need to be praying for these people. We need to pray because their, their souls are what is at stake here. And we, we need to, to, to pray that God would reach them and that creation would continue to scream at them and, and they would be broken down to surrender their lives to Christ. Those who, who are in the talk more about it mode, that, that God would continue to speak to them and, and there would be a follow-up conversation. And then there's the positive response. There will be those, like John, maybe it takes eight years, who come to the place of surrendering their lives to Christ. Sometimes I think we get caught up in feeling like we're responsible for the results of what happens when we share Christ. It's not our responsibility for the results. Our responsibility is to share Christ. I'm suggesting that part of our responsibility is to embrace, first of all, understanding where people are at in their understanding of who God is. And start there. 
and, 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 and walk graciously and humbly along with them in introducing them to the one who gives life and gives it to and, and not to abandon them if, if they say, I really don't want nothing to do with that. But in all love and grace and humility, continue to just come alongside as best we can. But to leave the results to the Holy Spirit, because that's His work. It's His work to move men and women and children in their hearts to Him. It's our job to be obedient to the calling placed on our lives, and that is to share Christ at every opportunity God puts in front of us. As the worship team comes forward, let me just review this. We need to help others recognize who God is. We need to help others recognize God is. And we need to help others recognize what God has said about himself. And there's so much more I could say about all of these. But I think you get the idea. And be aware of the responses that you might get. Might get people that, like John, just kind of smile and nod and tell me. Only eight years later to have surrendered his life. Might get people that never come around. So it's a there's one thing I know for sure. If we don't take the opportunities that God presents our way to shine the light of Christ into the light, it's probably not going to happen. We pass that opportunity. It may not come that person's way again. Sometimes the only glimpse of Jesus people get is what they see in and through us. And so what kind of witness are we? What kind of witness are we of the fact that God is and, and who He is and what He said? As we go into 2019, let us make it a year where we deepen our commitment to live life with Him, for Him, and through Him, continuing to encourage one another with those words. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming and giving us life and giving it to us to have love back. Lord, I pray that as, as we go through our daily tasks in this life, that, that we would be sensitive to the fact that not everybody understands what we're talking about sometimes when we're talking about it. They're, they're just looking at us sometimes going to say, what? What are you talking about? Something. Lord, Lord, that we would that we would realize that sometimes we, we need to just slow down and take a moment and see where people are and, and listen to what your spirit's telling us. And meet them there at that level and, and, and to, to just humbly walk along with them. I pray, Lord, that as, as we go into this next year, that all of us will be looking for the opportunities in our spheres of influence that you have put us in to be able to share with others. Give us the wisdom to know and understand where each person is at and how to, to bring the gospel to them to their sphere. Lord, remind us that it is not by our power, not by our might, but it's by your spirit. 
these things out. And so, Lord, I pray that we will not lose sight of this, that we will embrace the challenge, and that somehow, through all this, people would see Jesus through our <coughs> relationship. Lord, I give you these things and trust you for an awesome year in 2019.